0: Good morning everyone. Good morning. Let's finish up the 10 commandments. If you remember the conclusion of the 10 commandments starts on 395. We got just a little ways into it last week. And we went through paragraph 315 which and excuse me and 316. For the sake of it, let's just pick back up there, get a little bit of the context going and then carry on into the new material. So, 315, uh, page 396, of course, paragraph 315. "'Look, is not this a cursed overconfidence of those desperate saints who dare to invent a higher and better life and estate than the Ten Commandments teach, to pretend, as we have said, that this is an ordinary life for the common man, but theirs is for saints and perfect ones?' The miserable blind people do not see that no person can go far enough to keep one of the Ten Commandments as it should be kept. Both the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer must come to our aid as we shall hear. By them, power and strength to keep the commandments is sought and prayed for and received continually. So look at that. By the, by the Creed and the Lord's Prayer, and, and especially the, the content thereof, We receive power and strength to keep the commandments, um, and that continually. Luther continues, Therefore all their boasting amounts to as much as if I boasted and said to be sure I don't have a penny to make payment with, but I confidently will try to pay ten florins. All this I say and teach so that people might get rid of the sad misuse that has taken such deep root and still clings to everybody in all estates upon earth, They must get used to looking at these commandments only and to be concerned about these matters. For it will be a long time before they will produce a teaching or a state equal to the Ten Commandments, because they are so high that no one can reach them by human power.
1: Within them, Mm -hmm. you've got all this physicality going on in little children. Right. You don't... um, I don't know. This this is high. Yeah, if I'm te-
0: if I'm teaching these things to kids, Thinking. I'm not I'm not using any of these big words. I'm not using any what of would these you use
1: Instead of conscience,
0: I would simply behavior. No. Uh, no, I wouldn't. No. Um, okay. if, if I were to teach this with kids, it, I think I think Christian parents actually do this naturally when we uh, discipline our children. Yes. Right. There's the law to the flesh, yeah. but but once there's repentance there, we immediately show forth love and reaffirm them with, uh, in reference to their standing within the family. Yeah. Gospel. And so, so we're constantly interacting with them in terms of law and gospel, in terms of modeling and inculcating this, not on a cognitive level, but on a, on a behavioral communication level that ingrains itself into them. So that later on, I mean, really, honestly, this is, a, this is too advanced for confirmation. So yeah. after they're adults and in the faith, you, you show them something like this, and, and the light bulb goes on, and they go, yeah, you, that's, that's exactly to, right.
1: What I'm hearing you say is that you have to have the preliminary, basic presentation of God's interaction with us, all along, from, from little on. Um, I don't know, the older I get, the more complicated... The more problematic this is to me, because you've got all these different personalities that are stubborn or pliable, True. and uh, I don't know. I just think the Holy Spirit has to work over
0: time. Well, that's a fair point. So, so that's that's basically the point I was going to make, Ali, in response, and then we can move on. And that's simply that. That Yeah, this is, this is not the business that any man does for another man, per se. This is the business and work of the Holy Spirit that he does in and through God's, God's Word. Um, to be aware of these things as adult Christians, though, like, like a pattern like this that Luther introduces is, you know, the law does not belong in the conscience, only the gospel. And the gospel does not belong in the flesh, only the law. That can be really helpful in terms of a clarifying principle for us as adults, as, you know, we wrestle with our own sin, as we wrestle with the gospel, as we wrestle with what it means, you know, how to how to keep both and not lose one or the other. So, yeah, I would say that this is super helpful for adults, not so much for kids. You bet. Okay. Yes, yeah, Scott. So,
2: so, Pastor, on the point of the laws to not be in the conscience of the new man, you would draw or, would you draw an exception for right before communion
0: as you 're examining your conscience and confession yeah so so what that what that would be an example of Scott would be the Christian eye examining himself in particular this aspect, and confession is an act of crucifixion is an act of mortification, and so it is applying the law and the law 's accusations over and against the conscience this is this is why um for, for some of you, as it is for me, just the thought of going to a pastor and articulating your sins is terrifying. It, pr- that is precise. It is literally death. It is. I mean, it is probably more death than actual death, to, to, be, to, to speak as Luther would speak about it. Um, it is the terrors of death and hell, because it is the old Ma- Adam f- facing the judgment of God. You know, and like really hearty Christian souls will say, "Well, come on now, you weren't embarrassed to do it, so don't be embarrassed to confess it let 's go <laughs> uh, dragging yourself to confession absolution, and then and then just I mean not being sensationalistic, but on the one hand, but on the other hand, not pulling any punches and just calling a spade a spade is one of the most terrifying things you can do. And that's, but that's, it's precisely because it's a mortification of the old Adam in you. So, properly speaking, that's what's going on. You have the, the Christian I, who sees the, the law of sin at work in our members, brings the law and the condemnation of the law to bear, confesses this freely, In confessing it shows that, it's, in confessing it, you show that your will is identical with the will of God. Your will is aligned. Your eye is agreeing with God and saying, Yeah, I, a poor, miserable sinner, and these things are evil and wicked. And in fact, um, I'm only conscious of, of, of part of my sins. And that's why in, in all of our confessional formulas, uh, we plead guilty before God of all sins because our faults are hidden from us. You know, it's like an iceberg, it's like the ones we confess are just the tip of the iceberg. It may be a mountain in itself, but what's below the surface is even bigger than, than we know. Yes, right, exactly. Yeah, and this is, this is where accusations of... Uh, so the comment was for those online that, that, the, uh, that the Christian eye stands in agreement with God over and against its own sin. Yeah, and this is, this is huge because this means that you and God are on the same side against your sin and that this means then you view death positively because what God is doing in your death is severing this old man from you Forever. In that sense, death is a continuation of baptism. It's a fulfillment of this aspect of baptism, which is the crucifixion of the flesh. This is why, too, because, okay, I'm going to draw a circle from the Christian eye and the, and the new man, because if we're going to speak really, really properly, this is, I mean, these are one and the same. Okay, and this is why Jesus says... Um, Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Because what what is death? Death just goes like this, okay? Cuts right there and, and kills that. Death doesn't touch the Christian eye, death doesn't touch the new man. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. The experience of death is utterly transformed for us as Christians. I mean, as an individual, when you go through death, and, and I'm not talking about like, I mean, you may experience pain and suffering and that kind of thing, no doubt about it. But uh, the reverse of it is, is once you're once you're through it, so to speak, uh, death was death was the best thing that happened to you since being baptized, <laughs> because all that has died is the is the old Adam in you. Yeah, and then with it dies the accusation of the law. So, Pastor. Yes, yes, sir. There's many more questions, I'm sure, but uh, the, the, the thought that occurs to me is that,
1: uh, and I noticed that you emphasized that the law in this uh, sketch yeah, uh, yeah. Is, is condemnatory
0: sure. or accusatory. Sure. The third use of the law is not. Right. It's by def- By definition, right. right. So would you say that the third use applies to the new man uh, yeah, I mean, that's a more challenging question, because the Bible just doesn't give us super clear statements. The Bible doesn't make the distinctions we make as such between first use, second use, third use. True, but Paul does say he delights in the law. Abso- right. So, so yeah. it seems to me that, logically, it would have to be Paul the new man. I think you're right. I, and I, and I, I mean, I do. I think, I think you're right, and I think, again, if we, if we define law, as the confessions do, as the will of God, then of course we delight in it. And we can also see that Adam and Eve, before the fall into sin, delighted in the will of God, which is to say delighted in the law of God. Uh, the saints in heaven right now, whose bodies rest in the earth, who, whose souls are above, they delight in the will of God, they, just as they delight in God. How are you going to make a distinction between God and his will? I delight in God, but not God's will. <laughs> what? Okay. And then it's true for the when we rise in our bodies on the last day, the new heavens and the new earth. So so you see this whole thing is bookended and surrounded by by saints who delight in God and delight in God's will. Well, that's precisely the law. So we delight in the law. Yeah.
2: When you were speaking about confession and that it's terrifying to confess when you confess your sins, aren't you repenting of them? Are you I would only be terrified if I was still committing the sins and knew I was going to continue to commit those sins, and I wasn't repentant, then I would be terrified and ashamed. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> well, I don't I know. I can just tell you my experience as a penitent. It's not always comfortable. <laughs> your mileage may vary. Uh, it, but, but to actually, our, you know, I suppose it goes down to this, too. Like, like you know, you can, conf- you can kind of confess and meditate in different ways. Um, you might just simply say, you know, I violated the seventh commandment. That's that's quite a sanitary way of putting it, (laughs) as opposed to actually saying this person in this situation, and I did it, and I can't believe I did it because I've been so upset when other people did less to me than I just did to that person, right? Like that kind of confession is worlds away. You know what I mean? In terms of in terms of quality right, of, of confession. And then thus quality of experience in ter- terms of um, the nature. That's what I mean by quality. The nature of the experience you're going to have as a penitent. It's going to be vastly different if you just go in there and say, I plead guilty of all ten commandments. Please absolve me. Very different experience than we, you know, if you actually examine yourself in light of those and, again, not be gratuitous about it or sensationalistic about it. There's no, there's no need for that. Um, but uh, But to be specific about it, that's a different experience. It's a mortifying experience.
3: I just wanted to add something that was helpful to me. Uh, You know, with this process that we're talking about now, um, um, how the Ten Commandments work in our nature, old man and new man. But uh, back when we were studying 1 John, I think it was said that the word, the verb, treasure to treasure God's commandments was very helpful to me. Uh, yes, we obey them, and that's the end result. But in our nature, and we treasure them, and that aligns with the comment that you said, where our wills are aligned with God. So when we're treasuring them, we're on the same side of sin with God, and that's very comforting for me to understand that process. And uh, the other comment I would have, uh, and ask you to. Re- is when we wage war, uh, in our old man, that sounds like it's a work that we do, but I think it goes back to Ephesians six, isn't it? Where we use the, uh, word and sacrament, uh, God gives us his means of grace for us to accomplish that. And, and we're receiving these gifts is, is, would you say that was the accurate way that war is waged? It's not a, a, a work that we do—it's a—it's a receiving of the gifts that God gives us through His means of grace. Is that well? I would say it's
0: a work that we do, and I would say that on the basis of of the statement of statements in our confessions that talk about repentance as a work that we do. Um, but but you're right to say that it's a work that flows entirely from the grace of God and the gift of the Holy Spirit given in baptism, the Lord's Supper, the preaching of the word, absolution, etc. Right, So that, that empowers us and leads us and guides us. But in some sense, it is still us. And it is still us actively agreeing with it, participating with it, cooperating with it. Um, and, a, and I didn't honestly used to think that way about it, Barry. I was, uh, even as a pastor, I think somewhat fuzzy on this issue. Um, but what finally... What finally uh, changed my way of thinking on this, As some extent, to some extent dramatically, but maybe just more clarifying and focusing, was the uh, the formula of Concord, Article Two. So let me just read a section of that to you. Um, uh, oh, by the way, oh, you have your formula. You have your formula of Concord with you. Uh, page five thirty-five. And take a look at, um, maybe we'll start at 87, and this would be be sufficient. I mean, obviously there are more pages to to read to thoroughly understand this, but maybe this would be sufficient to make my point. Paragraph 87 and 88. The conversion of our corrupt will, which is nothing other than restoring it back to life from spiritual death, See what's being said here. The will doesn't participate in conversion. The will is the thing that's converted. And that entirely passively. That's what we want to keep like bedrock foundation, immovable. The will is passive in conversion. It is the thing converted. You can think of it as a light switch. And the the will, first of all, is, is switched over to spiritual death. And in conversion, which is only and solely God's work, then that will is switched over to eternal life. Okay? That's God's business. That's God's doing. So, Again, this is the foundation that needs to be laid so we don't get confused on this. The conversion of our corrupt will, which is nothing other than restoring it back to life from spiritual death, is only and solely God's work, just as the restoration of life in the resurrection of the body must also be credited to God alone. This has been fully set forth above and proved by clear testimonies of Holy Scripture. So, in in terms of justification, in terms of salvation, we are passive. 100% passive. Okay, next paragraph. In conversion, God changes stubborn and unwilling people into willing people, through the drawing of the Holy Spirit. Again, the power and activity is God's through his Holy Spirit. But notice what's happening. The person, the subject itself, has changed from an unwilling to a willing. You see, there's an actual change in the person. The, per- the quality of the person, the nature of the person, has now changed. All right, And it gets even clearer after this. Continuing, after such conversion, in the daily exercise of repentance... A person's regenerate will is not idle, but also cooperates in all the Holy Spirit's works that he does through us. How this happens has already been explained well enough above. Luther says about conversion that it is purely passive. This means a person does nothing at all toward conversion but only undergoes what God works in him.. Okay. Now that paragraph goes on and goes into another one. If you flip over to um, actually actually look just at the very bottom of 535 in the right-hand corner, a person's will that is to be converted does nothing toward this work but undergoes God's work alone in in him until, until he is regenerate. Then that person works with the Holy Spirit to do what is pleasing to God in other good works that follow, in the way and to the extent fully set forth above. Okay? So, if we use the distinction between justification and sanctification, in justification, we are entirely passive. In sanctification, we are active. We are cooperators with God. That is clearly the teaching of the scripture and the confessions. So then, when we talk about doing things like daily repenting, daily fighting against the sin in our lives, there is no problem whatsoever with saying that is, that is us actively doing that and cooperating with God and what He's doing in in, in through us uh, with His Holy Spirit, okay, in in exactly the way articulated here in the in the Formula of Concord. All right, so hopefully that helps to clarify. Um, but yeah, when I uh, that really profoundly tightened or clarified um, my own thinking, so I commend it to you. And really, that whole that whole Article too is just fantastic. Um, much needed. You know, we Lutherans are so, are so in the habit of talking about the bondage of the will, well and good. The bondage of the will is, is correct and true. But it gets, it gets misunderstood and applied in a ham-fisted way, as if to assert that, that Christians are still, that our wills are still bound to sin. But Article 2 there articulates very clearly that our wills have been freed. That Jesus says, the truth will set you free. yeah. And so we Christians possess freed wills. And Article 2 of the formula is very clear about that and makes its argument on the basis of Jesus' own word. All right, so no shame, no embarrassment in saying that we are active in our sanctification, active in uh, negatively drowning the old Adam daily, and positively delighting in the law of God, studying it, loving it, absorbing it. Learning more and more, praying that God would show us more and more, and this is really what the Psalms are full of, anyway. Is this very thing? Okay, where did we leave off? Back on page three ninety six. Nobody remembers. Oh, there's Just another question. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. To <laughs> I'm sorry. Yes. Hammer this. But okay. Here goes no.
1: the prepositional phrase in Christ. At least, to my mind, that mm-hmm. is. In, the, the word in mm-hmm. troubles me. Mm-hmm. You lay that aside, all that you have on the left over there. Mm-hmm. God's intervention, God's action totally on our behalf. Mm-hmm. I don't know, I, I put it in the context maybe of swimming, like I'm in, I'm in the water, and you probably would say, yes, that's maybe connecting with baptism. In Christ. What in the world does that phrase mean? But I guess all that you have on the left there. The gospel has been delivered through Christ's death on the cross to convey his, his desire to redeem us. Yeah. And he nurtures our conscience. He makes us alive. And I see the words rising. We're, we're awakening... Um, um through all that to me this is very um uh, uh, heavy thinking going on but the way that you and yeah. the rest in the of cl- uh, you in the class you seem to have it uh, have a lighter touch to this than what my brain has
0: well yeah let Clarified. me just let, well let me just answer your question as simply as I can with another one of my lovely pictures okay um just we should think about it like this, okay? Here is the Father in heaven, and here is the Son in communion with the Father, okay? so that 's what this is representing is, is in perfect communion, okay? and we we have become alienated, alienated from God, okay? so these are these are individual people, yes. there's billions of us, and we 're all alienated from God. By, by virtue of our sin, okay so um, and really really frankly, you could also conceptualize this um, as, as w- what is what is outside here let's just say they're all over here is Adam, and Adam has lost communion with God by virtue of his, by virtue of his sin, so in Adam, we are separated from God. Make sense okay, when you are baptized. Into Christ, you are baptized in Christ. What happens to you is you go like this. Now you've changed families, okay? Just like this, and the and the technical theological term is whoop, just like that, okay? And now you are now you are in Christ, and because you are in Christ, who is the Son, now you are sons. Sorry for the non-inclusive, non-gender-inclusive language. This is just the way the Holy Spirit chose to speak. You are now sons of God, and and the aberration we have is. Well, Jesus is a son of God. I'm a son of God. We're all sons of God. No, not quite quite like that. You're not the only begotten son of the Father from all eternity. All right, You are a son of God precisely because you you have become one with the Son of God. You are in the Son of God. You are in Christ. And thus, if you are in Christ, you are back in communion with the Father. This is why the Our Father is a baptismal prayer. Nobody can pray the, the Our Father without being baptized yeah because because you know you can't if if you're in adam if you're in adam's family, Adam's your father only by becoming uh by being baptized in Christ um, does God become your father as God is his father and so so then there's the there's the spatial difference or the you know, identifying difference all right. Now I really have to find where I left off. we got to the did we get to the first part of three ninety seven three twenty three that 's probably right okay three twenty three all right so here's the here 's the part about um, the gospel part he all, he, also he declares how richly he will reward, bless, and do all good to those who hold them in high value and gladly do and live according to them. So God demands that all our works proceed from a heart that fears and regards God alone. It's really interesting because here Luther uses the language of fear. Then, from such fear, the heart avoids everything that is contrary to his will, lest it should move him to wrath. So here's fear. Now look what comes next. Here's the second part. And on the other hand, the heart also trusts in him alone and from love for him does all he wants. For he speaks to us as friendly as a father, excuse me, and offers us all grace and every good. Now, for those of you paying attention or who maybe spent a significant time of your adolescence learning the small catechism, here you have fear, love, and trust. Right? You shall have no other gods before me. What does this mean? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And here you see fear, love, and trust. And then you also know that what happens in the rest of the explanation is trust gets dropped and you have fear and love. We should fear and love God, so, right? And, and, and we go through all the commandments with the fear and love God. In other words, we go through all the commandments with this really interesting dynamic with this law and gospel dynamic running through the heart of the commandments. We are motivated to do them in the first place out of fear that we not violate the commandment and merit his wrath. On the other hand, we are motivated to follow them out of love for him who first loved us, that we may, that we may walk in harmony with him and, and receive and dwell in his, his blessings and blessedness. So this is really a rich rich aspect to Luther's theology here that I think is all too often neglected. So here, here again, fear, love, and trust, and then you see the carry-through of the fear and love. And now these things as motivators uh, are, are going to, Luther's going to take us on a tour de force very briefly through the rest of the commandments. So uh, hold on tight, he'll do a little bit more analysis, and then he's going to take us through all the commandments with, these, with this dynamic in mind. So 324, this is exactly the meaning and true interpretation of the first and chief commandment from which all the others must flow and proceed. So this word, you shall have no other gods before me, in its simplest meaning, states nothing other than this demand, you shall fear, love, and trust in me as your only true God. For where there is a heart set in this way before God, that heart has fulfilled this commandment and all the other commandments. On the other hand, whoever fears and loves anything else in heaven and upon earth will keep neither this nor any of the commandments. So then, all the scriptures have everywhere preached and taught this commandment, aiming always at these two things, fear of God and trust in him. Now again, we've already seen trust used synonymously with love, so we can use that interpretively. The prophet David especially does this throughout the Psalms, as when he says the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Uh, Psalm 147. He writes as if the entire commandment were explained by one verse. As if to say, the Lord takes pleasure in those who have no other gods. Okay, Here's the tour de force through the commandments in light of this dynamic. So the first commandment is to shine and give splendor to all the others. Therefore you must let this declaration run through all the commandments. And that declaration is that we fear God and love God, or fear God and trust God. That's the declaration that runs through all the commandments. It is like a hoop in a wreath, joining the end to the beginning and holding them all together. Let it be continually repeated and not forgotten, as the second commandment says, so that we fear God and do not take his name in vain for cursing, lying, deceiving, and other ways of leading men astray or trickery but we make proper and good use of his name by calling upon him in prayer, praise, and thanksgiving, derived from love and trust, according to the first commandment." So this is pretty huge. That means that in Luther's explanation, all the negative aspects have to do with fearing God, and all the positive aspects having to do with loving him, or loving and trusting him. Right? So, so this dynamic, this declaration, runs through all the commandments, Luther says. And we've been through the first and the second, so let's continue on. In the same way, such fear, love, and trust is to drive and force us not to despise his word, but gladly to learn it, hear it, value it wholly, and honor it. There's the third commandment. So this teaching continues through all the following commandments toward our neighbor. Everything is to flow from the first commandment's power. We honor father and mother, masters and all in authority, and are subject and obedient to them, not for their own sake, but for God's sake. There's the fourth commandment, of course. You are not to regard or fear father or mother, nor should you do or skip anything because you love them. But note what God would have you do, what he will quite surely demand of you. If you skip that, you have an angry judge. There's the fear part the law part. But if you do the work, you have a gracious Father. There's the love and trust part, the gospel part. Again, do your neighbor no harm, injury, or violence. Here's the fifth commandment. Nor in any way oppress him with regard to his body. Uh, There's fifth. Wife, sixth. Property, seventh. Honor, uh, eighth. And rights, remember scheming to get them in any dishonest way, that's nine and ten all these things are commanded in their order even though you may have a chance and cause to do wrong and no person would rebuke you again uh, getting away with it isn't the measure <laughs> isn't the measure if you can get away with it or if it's legal that's not the measure luther reminding us of that he continues but do good to all men help them and promote their interest in every way and wherever you can purely out of love for God, and to please him." There's that second use of the language of please, isn't it? He's already pleased with us in Christ, but here Luther enjoins us to please him. That is, to do these commandments and so please him. Remember the analogy I used of a son, like I'm pleased to have my son, regardless of how he behaves. right? Um, but in a secondary way, if he does what's right and faithful, I'm pleased all the more. I'm pleased in the second way. right? And there's the second way that Luther's talking about here, that, that um, we would help and promote our neighbor's interests in every way, wherever we can, purely out of love for God and to please him. So seeking to please God is actually a good and Christian thing, according to the large catechism. Whereas this is panned as a theology of glory in many circles. Um, but it really is fundamentally Christian. Do this in the confidence that he, God, will abundantly reward you for everything. So again, like, like what's a motivation? It's not wrong. And so often this gets trotted out as if, as if it's somehow wrong or impure um, to desire God, that God would be pleased and or reward us. And The catechism just has no room for any of this sophistry. Luther writes very plainly, Do this in the confidence that he will abundantly reward you for everything.
2: But is it wrong for that to be our motivation to do good so that we get reward?
0: I don't think so. I mean, because the because the reward is to share more in God and in his blessings and abundance, you know? I think I think if we're trying to merit our way into God's grace and favor, trying to please him in the first way with our works, well, clearly we can't do that. Clearly that's sinful. But knowing that we've been saved and rescued purely by grace and apart from our works for the sake of Christ, then to seek God, you know, and the heart changes and the reward changes. We're not talking about like, well, I want to obey God so that he'll uh, you know, really puff up my bank account. I mean, that's not, really the, that's not really what the Christian wants in terms of reward or blessing either. Reward or blessing is to have more of God, to understand more of his gifts, to see things more as he sees things, right? Um, to have our treasure be one and the same with his treasure, what he values and cares about, that our hearts would value and care about the same thing all the more. In short, that we would have the Holy Spirit, you know, and that's what Jesus is getting at. Remember, with all the prayer, and he ends with that Holy Spirit. You know, uh, which of you who asks his father for a fish, and his, his father will give him a snake, or asks for a loaf of bread, and his father will give him a rock? If you who are evil know how to do good, as give, uh, uh, give good gifts. Then how much more your heavenly Father will give the Holy Spirit if you ask him, right? And so, so I think, I think Liz, maybe maybe your point would be well taken if if we're conceiving of reward in a in a, in an old Adam sort of way. Right. Well,
2: so like, yeah. So like, the don't let your right hand know or left hand know what your right hand is doing.
0: Uh huh. And and we are unworthy servants. um, You know, from our gospel text, right? Once you have done all that you are commanded, say we are unworthy servants. Yeah, it's not it's not cause to uh, to present God with a bill of sale. Like that's not the point, right? Okay, I did X. I did X number of uh, of good works, God. Uh, according to my calculations, you, you owe me Y number of rewards. If we're thinking about it like that, we're thinking about it in the old old man way of reward. Um, the reward is to the reward is almost in and of itself. You know how God punishes sin with sin. What if He rewards good with good? You see the flip side of that. Like that's what I'm talking about. That's that's more what I mean by reward. Yeah.
2: Without giving anything away, when we get to paragraph 328, uh-huh. I think that toward the bottom of that, you'll see that that's answered. Do good to all men, Galatians 6:10. Yes. Help them and promote their interest purely out of love for God and to please Him. Mm-hmm. Do this in the confidence that He will abundantly reward you for everything. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. That so, really, speak to that.
0: Yeah, that's what we're commenting on, and then I would uh, my notes point over to. Wait a minute, yeah, my notes point over to three ninety eight. So maybe we should maybe we should move on um, because we've got more on this specific point coming in the next page. So maybe that will shed further light. Let's let's look at uh, three twenty nine where we left off. Now you see how the first commandment is the chief source and fountainhead that flows into all the rest. Note again, all return to that first commandment and depend upon it. So, beginning and end are fastened and bound to each other. I love that. That is just a beautiful way of thinking of the commandments. This is always profitable and necessary to teach the young people. Admonish them and remind them of it, so that they may be brought up not only with blows and compulsion like cattle, but in the fear and reverence of God. Let this be considered and laid to heart that these things are not human games, but are the commandments of the divine majesty. He insists on them with great seriousness. He is angry with and punishes those who despise them. On the other hand, he abundantly rewards those who keep them. In this way there will be a spontaneous drive and a desire gladly to do God's will. Okay, so yeah, I mean that that certainly that certainly adds to what we were meditating on just a moment ago. Again, this twofold dynamic of we fear God because he punishes those who reject his commandments, Um, on the other hand, abundantly rewards those who keep them. And so then in the in this way, Luther says, there will be a spontaneous drive. And desire gladly to do God's will. I, I mean, yeah, to, to avoid the punishment, sure. Uh, to, to get the blessings and benefits, sure. Um, but more foundationally, to, I mean, as Jesus says, that, that um, well, as Jesus teaches us to pray, thy will be done, right? So that our wills are increasingly conformed to God's will. And that in and of itself is reward. Yeah, that in and of itself is reward. Okay, so continuing uh, at paragraph 331. Therefore, it is not meaningless that it is commanded in the Old Testament that we should write the Ten Commandments on all walls and corners. Yes, even on our garments. This is not for the sake. <laughs> this is not for the sake of merely having them written in these places and making a show of them. Check out my Ten Commandments vest. The Jewish people did that, but it is so we might have our eyes constantly fixed on them. We should have them always in our memory. Then we might do them in all our actions and ways. Then everyone may make them his daily exercise in all cases, in every business and transaction, as though they were written in every place wherever he would look, indeed, wherever he walks or stands. Then there would be enough opportunity, both at home in our own house and abroad with our neighbors, to do the Ten Commandments, so that no one would need to run far to find them. From this it again appears how highly these Ten Commandments are to be exalted and extolled above all estates, commandments, and works that are taught and done apart from them. For here we can boast and say, Let all the wise people and saints step forth and produce, if they can, a single work like these commandments, God insists on these with such seriousness. He commands them with his greatest wrath and punishment. Besides, he adds such glorious promises to them that he will pour out upon us all good things and blessings. Therefore, they should be taught above all others and be valued precious and dear as the highest treasure given by God. What what Lutheran today speaks that way about the law? (laughs) the highest treasure given by God. So uh, that takes us to the conclusion of the uh, Ten Commandments. Is there a a last comment before we close? Yeah, it
2: just seems that that gets back to what the prosperity uh, religions offer. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times we see people who seem very righteous who just are felled by one adversity after another. And what we have to remember is that the reward comes in heaven.
0: Yeah, that's, that's true. And in a, more deeply, in a more deep way, too, we remember that Jesus perceived his suffering as glory. And so there's, there's, there's something immense and profound to be said for being conformed into the image of Jesus and suffering for what is good and thus having good added to good and glory added to glory. It's just upside down and backwards from how the world sees it. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Okay. Next week, um, part two: the Apostles' Creed. The Lord be with you.